From Maine Public Radio and mainepublic.org, I'm Carol Bousquet with the news on this day in Maine, Friday, February 24, 2023. This Day in Maine is made possible by listener support and by Eastern Basements, a division of Maine-owned Eastern Mold Remediation, offering basement waterproofing solutions, easternbasements.com. Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine one year ago this week. Since then, dozens of displaced Ukrainians have found their way to Maine, and refugee resettlement agencies are expecting many more in the coming months. Ari Snyder reports. At least 92 Ukrainians have arrived in Maine through the federal Uniting for Ukraine program, which allows private citizens to sponsor Ukrainian evacuees. Inza Watara, with the Office of Maine Refugee Services at Catholic Charities, says that number is likely an undercount because the state's resettlement agencies only count individuals who show up needing their services. And he expects that number to grow as Mainers continue to file applications to sponsor Ukrainians. And are we seeing those applications increasing? For example, in Maine, we have uh, more than 300 sponsors that are willing to welcome Ukrainians. Since the beginning of the war, more than 8 million Ukrainians have fled the country, according to the United Nations. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Ari Snyder. A federal appeals court heard arguments today from the Maine Lobstermen's Association, which is challenging a government plan to regulate the fishery and conserve endangered right whales. Nicola Grisco reports. The Maine Lobstermen's Association had promised to take its latest appeal, the federal fishing regulations, all the way to the Supreme Court, if necessary. But lobstermen hope they'll avoid that prospect, especially with Paul Clement, a former U.S. Solicitor General with more than 100 Supreme Court appearances representing Maine. In his arguments before the U.S. Court of Appeals, Clement says that the National Marine Fishery Service made procedural errors in issuing a series of recommendations intended to protect right whales and regulate the lobster fishery. But he also says that the agency didn't follow its own rules under the Endangered Species Act and instead relied on worst-case scenarios in regulating the lobster fishery and conserving endangered North Atlantic right whales. The best available scientific data, if you ask me, is that in 2016, 2017, and 2018, every single documented entanglement was a Canadian one. It wasn't 80 to 20%. For those three years, it was 100% to zero. And yet, why was that data completely ignored? Clement says the Federal Fisheries Agency cherry-picked other data sets and used them to make regulatory decisions in favor of the right whale species. And he says the government ignored the economic implications of its decisions on an iconic Maine industry. The federal government, though, disagrees. Attorney Summer Engels says the agency didn't rely exclusively on worst-case scenarios. And with an estimated 340 right whales remaining, available data on the whales' whereabouts and their entanglements is often limited. Although there were more observed entanglements that could be attributed to Canada, most observed data is not representative. Again, the the whales move, lots of gear is unmarked, and so the fact that some have been found in Canada is not representative of the larger circumstance. The Federal Fisheries Agency also argues that the lobstermen's case is moot 
because Congress included a six-year pause on new fishing regulations in this year's federal spending bill. But Clement says Maine lobstermen are still dealing with fishing regulations that were implemented before the most recent spending bill became law, and that the industry is seeking relief. The Maine Department of Marine Resources, the Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association, and the Maine Lobstering Union have intervened in support of the appellants. Three conservation groups have intervened on behalf of the federal government. Federal judges did not indicate a timeline for their ruling. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Nicole Legrisco. Have you ever thought about the carbon footprint of your body after you die? Over the past few decades, more people have been opting for green burials, in which bodies are placed in the ground with no more than a biodegradable casket or burial shroud. As part of our climate-driven series, Estepratt Kylie visited a conservation cemetery in Kennebec County. It's a sunny February day as Kathy Murray walks up a trail in Fayette, snow crunching beneath her boots. She comes upon a grove of tall cathedral pines and oak trees. It's silent except for the patters of squirrels and the wind rustling the tops of the trees. This is the spot where Kathy says she'll be buried. My whole life, um, I assumed that when I died, I would become part of the earth to feed back into the cycle. I started when I was a kid and we buried our pets in the yard or we buried a dead bird that we found. It just seemed really natural to me. Of course, when I grew up, I realized, oh, that isn't what's going on. Kathy purchased a burial site here at the Baldwin Hill Conservation Cemetery, which the Kennebec Land Trust recently opened. There are 90 acres of conserved land, 10 of which are reserved for burials. I did want to do something with the least climate change impact and also being readily available to the trees and to the environment. Kathy is among an increasing number of people opting for a green burial. According to one survey, 60% of Americans say they're interested in exploring green funeral options. The majority of people are looking for a more environmental way to leave the planet. They're looking for a better exit. Lee Webster is a green burial advocate and the former president of the Green Burial Council, an advocacy and educational nonprofit that certifies cemeteries nationwide. She says while conventional burials using a concrete vault produce an estimated 250 pounds of carbon, green burials sequester 25 pounds. Then there's the added sequestration of greenhouse gases through land conservation for cemeteries like Baldwin Hill. When we learn that our bodies can contribute to carbon sequestration as opposed to expenditure, it flips a switch for a lot of people. Every year, conventional burials in the United States require the use of millions of gallons of toxic embalming fluid and millions of feet of hardwoods, including rare varieties harvested from the rainforest. Vast amounts of carbon-intensive materials are used to make burial vaults, some 1.6 million tons of concrete and 64,000 tons of steel, according to research by Mary Woodson for the Green Burial Council. Cremation requires an average of 28 gallons of fuel, about enough to fill an SUV's gas tank, and also releases carbon monoxide and sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, as well as mercury from dental fillings. Researchers at Columbia University have found that cremating a single body is equivalent to the average home's monthly household energy consumption. By contrast, green burial requires only a biodegradable casket or organic burial shroud. 
The grave is dug about 30 inches deep, which is ideal for aerobic decomposition, essentially composting. The land trust Jean-Luc Theriot says the grave is then lined with pine boughs. Um, to lay in the bottom of the, the grave um, and alongside. And then the family is welcome to bring non, you know, biodegradable flowers or anything else that they'd like to bring to the service. Everything else is, you know, very similar to a normal service. And graves can be dug at any time of the year, even when the ground is frozen. But green burial is not without some challenges. Without the embalming preservation, bodies need to be interred more quickly. Many local municipal cemeteries still require vaults in their bylaws. And conservation burials, which are green burials located on preserved lands such as Baldwin Hill, pose the additional challenge of acquiring land and getting land trusts on board. But Kennebec Land Trust Executive Director Teresa Kirshner says she hopes Baldwin Hill will serve as an example for others to follow. One of the things that we really focused on is how can we model this process in our part of Maine so that it would become more common and it wouldn't seem like it was such a, a big hurdle for municipalities to think about in their cemeteries. The snow is several feet deep where Kathy Murray is walking along the trails at Baldwin Hill. As a cancer survivor, she says planning her burial has brought her a sense of peace, which she hopes her family will also feel when she's eventually laid to rest here. I think about my kids uh, carrying me here. It feels like a good ritual, you know, to really acknowledge that this earthly body has done its part and it's over. Um, and I like to think about them bringing me here and feeling at peace with, with what's happened and that it's a place that they can return to and feel that same peace. There have been six green burials to date at Baldwin Hill which has a total capacity of 300 plots. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Esther Pratt-Kiley. It's now time for Maine's Political Pulse, our weekly analysis of politics and government. This week, Maine Calling host Jennifer Rooks spoke with political reporters Steve Missler and Kevin Miller about the latest political developments. All right, Kevin, there's another potential referendum in the news, a right to repair those petition signatures were um, approved this week. Explain what this is. So Right to Repair, is it's a national movement that its supporters say really is needed to allow consumers to fix or to hire someone to fix all the things that we buy, whether that's a, a cell phone or a washing machine or, or a car. The, the Right to Repair question that is likely going to voters this fall here in Maine only deals with automobiles in this case. And it says that a car manufacturer has to give all these independent car repair shops or, or car owners access to, to the really high-tech diagnostic systems and tools that, that are really needed to, to work on cars today. Uh, a lot of cars, you know, used to be that you took it to a shop and they plugged it into the, to the car and, and they'd get a, a download of what's going on, the diagnostic codes. Well, nowadays, a lot of these, these, uh, this information is actually transmitted wirelessly to car manufacturers and to dealers. And the independent repair shops say that they should have access to that information. That way car owners can decide where they want to take their car to get it fixed. But on the other side, uh, you have the car makers and the suppliers, and they say that really the independent shops already have access to these diagnostics and these tools. And instead they say this is a money grab by the aftermarket 
parts manufacturers and the big retailers. And they say that basically they're trying to get access to car owners' data for marketing and sales. Steve, Senator King is the target of criticism this week from the right. Tell us about the Twitter files. All right. So the Twitter files is a project of Twitter's new CEO, Elon Musk, who believes that the social media company uh, muzzled conservatives under its previous ownership regime. And to prove this point, he has handpicked journalists who share this view, including Matt Taibbi, a former darling of the left who is now championed by the far right. Last week, Taibbi released internal Twitter documents showing that King's 2018 campaign had provided a list of hundreds of what they described as suspicious social media accounts to Twitter's previous executives. That list includes bots, conspiracy theorists, troll accounts, and but it also included some accounts that supported his Republican challenger that year, State Senator Eric Brakey. Now, Brakey and Republicans are now saying that this is evidence that King effectively created an enemies list, which is why you'll hear a lot of references to Richard Nixon if you are following the story, uh, and also that he used his position as a U.S. senator to persuade Twitter to take down these accounts. We don't know if that actually happened, but even if it didn't, the attempt has provided the Republicans grist for their larger claim that Twitter had had it out for conservatives. Now, I should point out that there's been an other reporting, and not from Taibbi, suggesting that politicians in both parties have indeed lobbied Twitter to take down or at least review bot or troll accounts. And if that's accurate, then King, King's request uh, suggests that there's an emerging pattern of elected officials, including high-profile pro Republicans like the former president, lobbying social media companies to adjust content based on their interests. So that's sort of the the controversy in a nutshell. And a spokesman for King essentially has, a frame, has framed this list as another example of Taibbi pu publishing only documents that fit his and Musk's narrative. And they also claim that they've provided a list of far-left accounts, too, that they said was spreading misinformation. Uh, and Angus King has also said that that was the intent here was to police misinformation. Kevin Miller, Governor Mills announced that she has joined the, the Reproductive Freedom Alliance, a group of 19 Democratic governors. What do these governors think they can do together that they can't do individually? It seems that basically this is their attempt to show a united front on protecting abortion. And it's in response to the very vocal and you know sometimes uh, very coordinated campaigns that we've seen by anti-abortion governors and legislators in, in some states. There's a lot of talk in states uh, where abortion remains legal and is less restricted, like here in Maine, that they need to do something to shore up the legal protections for doctors who perform abortions, for women who come here from, from other states with more severe restrictions. I mean, that seems to be one area of potential coordination. Uh, some abortion, abortion opponents are focused on restricting the use of medication abortion, which has become the most common form of abortion in many states. And then there are concerns about um, access to contraception in some areas. So, you know, most of the governors who join this are from from left leaning states. But there are a few Democratic governors in there from states where Republicans actually control the legislature. Uh, I think uh, North Carolina and Wisconsin are two. So, again, I think this is more of a chance for these 20 governors to kind of show a united front up against the, the very vocal things that we're seeing from Republican governors. Steve Maine's Wabanaki nations are trying a new tack in their effort to gain tribal sovereignty. Tell me about the upcoming State of the Tribes address. 
Yeah, so we learned this week, Jen, that the Wabanaki leaders will be given an opportunity to address a joint session of the legislature on March 16th. That will mark the first time in nearly 20 years that the tribes have given such an address to a joint convention of the legislature. But as you noted, Jen, this is one this one will come at a time when I think there's much greater awareness about the plight of the Wabanaki and more specifically how they're treated differently than the hundreds of other Native American tribes in the United States. We don't ex know exactly what they'll discuss, but I think it's probably safe to say that they'll address what they view as constraints on their economic self-determination as a way of appealing to lawmakers that changes are needed. Now, they've they've been doing that for the last few years, a concerted effort to do it the last few years. But I think this time they'll get a, a chance to talk to the entire legislature all at once. And House Speaker uh, Rachel Talbot Ross, who has been a close ally of the Wabanaki, had said recently that she wanted the tribes to give this address, and it looks like they'll finally get their chance to do that. Kevin, what is the latest on Clinton Collimore, that state rep who was accused of forging signatures on clean election petitions? Yeah, we, well, we just heard this morning, actually, that Mr. Collimore has submitted his letter of resignation to the House Speaker. He had said that he was going to do that last week after he uh, pled not guilty in a West Cassett courtroom to those charges that he, he forged signatures uh, voters in order to qualify for about $14,000 in campaign, uh, public campaign financing. That seat is officially vacant, and there will now be a special election to fill it. You know, I think what's what's interesting, uh, this is a fairly rural district in one of those areas along the coast that can be hard to predict. But I wouldn't say the Waldeboro or Friendship areas are liberal bastions like we see on other parts of the mid-coast. So Republicans are already uh, pledging to put up a really strong effort to recapture that seat. But in the end, it's not going to affect the balance of power because Democrats have a, have a sizable majority in the House. And that's Maine's political pulse for this week. And that wraps up today's Maine news. For more stories, visit mainepublic.org and join us for Weekend Edition Saturday tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. I'm Carol Bousquet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>